Look, folks, there's only one way to curb the runaway powers of Amazon, Facebook, and Google. There's only one way to prevent technologies like AI and self-driving cars and delivery drones and the endless array of devices that monitor and record our every facial twitch, heartbeat, and degree of body temperature from taking over our lives, taking away our privacy and our rights as consumers, and otherwise robbing us of what it means to be human. The European Union knows the solution. The U.S. Congress knows the solution. And business leaders know it too. We need regulation and plenty of it. The incoming administration of U.S. President Joe Biden should join with governments across the world to step in, break up the monopolies, and implement controls that protect their citizens from the vast manipulations and abuses of big tech. I'm Paul Michaelman, Editor-in-Chief of MIT Sloan Management Review, and this is Three Big Points. So let's get ready to regulate! Right, Larry Downs? Gosh, Paul, if I didn't know better, I'd think that uh, the T in MIT stood for something other than technology. Uh, I don't agree. We've had a wonderful period of regulation-free innovation, which has generated tremendous value. Uh, I wouldn't want to stop that train now, especially not, uh, you know, derailing it completely from the tracks. So, of course, Larry, I was being slightly over the top, but clearly this is a, a discussion with many stakeholders and many points of view. So first, who are you in this conversation? What is your background? What are your credentials as a voice we should be paying heed to? Sure. So, you know, I've had, uh, I've had a lot of careers in my life. I've worked as a strategist, a tech entrepreneur, an investment, a lawyer, and an academic. And over the last 10 years in particular, I've sort of uh, self-appointed myself ambassador between Silicon Valley and Capitol Hill. I'm trying to bridge the gaps between innovation and public policy, a, a mission I have to admit has largely failed. You call yourself a self-appointed ambassador, but there's more to it than that. You're actually active in this conversation. Yes, that's right. I, I actually commute between Silicon Valley and Washington, or I was until recently. That every two months, I testify regularly before Congress. And for the last several years, I've been working with the Georgetown Business School at the Center for Business and Public Policy. So, Larry, in your new article in MIT Sloan Management Review, you lay out your point of view and your belief for how we should be approaching regulation in innovation and technology. Why don't we just walk through the key points in your argument? Sure. So, I mean, to start with, you know, we should acknowledge what the policy we've had, and it's been remarkably stable uh, for most of the last uh, 20 years, at least, even under both Republican and Democratic administrations. And that has been essentially to, to leave tech, particularly uh, new tech, disruptive tech, to leave it alone, uh, not to try to regulate it, not to try to intervene, not to try to shape it. Uh, not even to try to fund it uh, largely publicly. Mostly it's been funded uh, privately. And that's worked uh, you know, remarkably well, at least from the standpoint of looking at value creation, uh, you know, how much uh, new value has been generated uh, in the value of companies that have uh, grown up under that regime. Uh, and in, you know, I think a lot of the, the new products and services that we've had uh, the pleasure to have used uh, over the last uh, 20 years particularly uh, things like smartphones and obviously new things like drones and self-driving cars and new medical technologies as well. And I think that's all well and good, right? And speaks to the importance of allowing innovation to innovate or to allow innovators to innovate. 
But surely we can recognize that not all technology innovation has been good. Fair? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> We're obviously all, all victims in one way or another of uh, things that have gone wrong. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is what, uh, what economists refer to as sort of uh, negative externalities. There are things that happen uh, outside or indirectly from the technology and so aren't the kinds of things that markets, as a general rule, are particularly good at correcting. So let's get specific, right? Um, we're, 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 we're coming out um, of an election cycle, I mean, arguably a second presidential election cycle, where social media loomed incredibly large and powerful, where misinformation um, and um, if we believe the, the wealth of reporting, foreign agents, right, have been able to operate um, and manipulate um, the way um, we see the world. Um, surely um, regulation could have played a role in stemming some of that, yes? Well, maybe. I mean, obviously there's plenty of regulation already. It's, a, it's largely self-regulation. Um, we certainly can argue, and I don't necessarily disagree, that it wasn't completely successful or even largely successful. The problem is, what's the alternative? I mean, in any legal discussion, you always want to ask yourself, uh, what, what is the remedy that you think will solve the problem? And that's where we immediately get into trouble. We have so many limits, uh, particularly when it comes to political speech, uh, that the First Amendment in this country places on the ability of regulators to intervene in any kind of discussion, but particularly a political discussion, that uh, you, know, you start proposing any kind of control or regulation or oversight uh, of that speech, uh, you immediately run into constitutional problems, but you also run into practical problems. I mean, there are millions, maybe billions of interactions going on at any time. Uh, what, what possible agency in, in our government would have the resources, uh, the expertise, or even the ability to keep up with the discussion, let alone to try to uh, moderate it or in some way steer it into more healthy channels. Well, I don't think not having the resources or the expertise seem like addressable issues. And if there's a greater public good, shouldn't we focus on building the expertise and developing the resources? Well, then the question becomes an institutional one. Yes, I agree with you. The question is, where do you want to build that expertise? Do you want to build it inside governments, which typically move very slowly and are, of course, themselves very much subject to uh, political pressures. We've certainly seen that in the last four years. Or do you want to build it into the ecosystem itself? Do you want to make sure that there are incentives and indeed penalties for the market, for private providers, uh, if they don't build that kind of capacity uh, and do it themselves, uh, hopefully in more you know, responsive, more quick, and a more technology-based set of solutions? How might that look, say, in the case of Facebook? So, you know, Facebook, as I say in the piece, has been congenitally mismanaged. I think from birth, it's been a, a very poorly run company. Uh, probably not our, our, you know, our, our best poster child for how this could be done. But they have been doing a lot, uh, especially over the last uh, few years, to build up sort of automated technology as well as, uh, you know, human-moderated technology to try and find, you know, these, uh, these uh, bad pages, these the hate speech, the, the foreign intervention all of the stuff that's, that's truly garbage and rooted out. Now, you could say they haven't done it fast enough, they haven't done a good enough job, uh, but they certainly have filtered out quite a bit uh, of bad stuff. You know, I, we would never know. We don't know how much worse it could have been in this last election cycle if they hadn't done what they've already done. So let's pull back and, and look at some of kind of the higher level, let's call them philosophical issues here. You know, history does show, 
I think that every major technological advancement has ultimately improved the human condition, right? Which is an argument in favor of letting innovation blossom. But does that necessarily mean we have to accept the short-term costs of that long-term improvement? Carl Frey argued uh, this point in, in his book, The Technology Trap. This issue is especially resonant against a strong set of evidence that demonstrates that the value of new technology is not evenly distributed, especially in the early stages of a major transition such as the one that we're in. Regulation doesn't necessarily prevent innovation. It can help provide a pathway to best unleash its power of good, can it not? Right, and, and you know, there's, there's a reason why you know, Schumpeter described this as creative destruction. Uh, it is true that in the early stages of, of these kinds of innovations that we're seeing that transform industries, that transform life as we know it, it's very messy at the beginning. Uh, there is a lot of uh, fallout. There is a lot of uneven distribution of the value. The problem, however, with the, the, the regulatory solution is, uh, again, uh, what kind of a remedy can you propose? You know, we've designed our governments uh, to be deliberative and slow for very good reasons. That's all the checks and balances uh, in the U.S. system and the Constitution, uh, because we don't want to, uh, you know, regulate in the middle of a crisis. We don't want to make decisions based on emotions. We want to slow the process down. And in most situations, that's a good thing. It works very well. The problem is it doesn't work well when things are changing quickly. And in some ways, what you're really seeing here is, is kind of the, the struggle between traditional law and Moore's law. Moore's law being, you know, that, uh, that wonderful principle that computing power continues to, to double every couple of years. Uh, that's really what's introducing so much chaos and uncertainty. And the problem is that traditional governments are extremely poor uh, in responding to that level of change in terms of its pace, in terms of its uncertainty, and in terms of its trajectory. Now, that's not to say that even in the short term, you can't regulate. In fact, all these companies are regulated uh, in ways, you know, the traditional companies are in terms of, uh, you know, taxation and health safety and uh, all the things that, uh, that, that sit on top of any company, regardless of uh, what kind of thing it's doing. But it's when you start to talk about specific regulation of specific products and services or specific technology that I think government is very poorly suited, especially in the short term to do anything that won't make things actually worse. So I think there really kind of are two parts to this conversation, right? There is the role of regulation or, or lack thereof with respect to allowing um, companies to produce new innovations and potentially disruptive innovations. That's one. The second part of the conversation is about how free these, these companies um, are to exploit the full value of their innovations over time, right? The monopoly part um, of this conversation. And, you know, is there not a reasonable argument that Facebook and Google and Amazon, to name three, but others too, pursue monopolistic business strategies by exploiting the size and wealth they've built on the back of their disruptive innovations um, and using their footprint to block new entrants, exploit business partners, copy and expand other companies' strategies, and therefore restrict consumer options. There's certainly um, a wellspring of government and media activity in support of that argument. And there's certainly a lot of activity uh, outside the U.S., particularly in the European Union, uh, to, to sort of pursue that theory. 
The problem is it does not jibe with the uh, U.S. approach to, uh, to unfair competition and antitrust, at least not over the last 50 years. Uh, we've had a standard, uh, and of course it's supported by, by not only statute but case law as well, uh, what's called the consumer welfare standard that says, you know, we don't know what a monopoly is. We don't define it explicitly in terms of market share or in terms of, uh, of, of any other sort of numerical criteria. We define monopoly in terms of its impact on consumers. And as long as consumers are not experiencing monopoly pricing, they're not, they're not seeing things, you know, once the person has control of the market, they suddenly raise prices. That's a good indication uh, of, uh, of an antitrust problem that would be covered by the consumer welfare standard. But when a lot of the products and services we're talking about here from the companies you named uh, are not charged, we don't pay, at least we don't pay monetarily for their use, things like YouTube and Facebook and, and Google search and, and Amazon, the prices actually go down. If you, you know, you're shopping on Amazon, things get cheaper. Uh, and under those sort of uh, economics, uh, U.S. antitrust law, at least as it's been practiced for the last 50 years, just doesn't recognize a harm. Is there any argument kind of, is there a B2B argument here? Is there an argument that um, upstart businesses can mount, basically saying that they, they cannot compete, even if there is no overt and obvious consumer harm? Yes, it's a much more limited argument, and many uh, have made it. Uh, certainly the, the, in the U.S., again, the Justice Department over the last uh, four years, even even going back into the Obama administration, tried to bring several cases like that, arguing that the, some of these tech companies were excluding uh, uh, competitors or were, in fact, uh, conspiring to, to keep them out of the market. I have to say not really a single one of those cases has succeeded in the courts. There have been some settlements, uh, monetary penalties and fines and small changes to behavior have been agreed to. But by and large, uh, the Justice Department just does not have antitrust law that uh, supports uh, harm to competitors as opposed to harm to consumers to work with. I think a counter argument um, here is that the speed with which the new big tech right, has um, kind of gone from nascent idea to worldwide juggernaut, the speed with which um, the major tech players have kind of invaded seemingly all facets of our lives is unprecedented. And perhaps his, a historical view um, of, of regulation, particularly with respect to um, potential monopolistic business practices, doesn't work here. At some point, don't we have to recognize that certain elements of what we're seeing today are really unprecedented and demand perhaps a point of view that is not purely historical in nature? Well, it's funny, you know, I have a, an article taped up on my desk uh, from a few years ago, and it's from the, uh, the newspaper, The Guardian, and the headline is, Will MySpace Ever Lose Its Monopoly? Um, and it's not ironic. I mean, at the time this Touché. article was written, <laughs> the time this article was written, MySpace was the dominant social media platform. Uh, of course, it was backed by, you know, Rupert Murdoch, and, you know, this... This was a company that had every reason to believe it was going to become a worldwide juggernaut, as you described. Um, look, it's certainly possible that we have entered, you know, a history, the end of his, the end of history, uh, in terms of uh, of how tech and markets interact. But we should remember that, you know, Google had to beat out uh, a lot of other search engines 
that at the time looked like they were the ones that were going to be with us forever. Now, of course, we don't even remember their names. So it is possible. I mean, my belief, you know, and it's really, it's really almost a, an artifact of, of religion than anything else, is that the way to, to discipline markets uh, dominated by a few technology providers is with more technology. That you know, sort of new generations of tech, new pop, you know, new opportunities, new uh, potential uh, will lead to new startups uh, that will do things differently, and that in fact will displace even the ones that today seem undisplaceable. I could be wrong about that, uh, but in the meantime, it's I think very dangerous to start tinkering with the machinery unless you actually know how the machinery works. And you've got, as I said earlier, you've got a remedy that you think will do it in a way that won't make things worse than they already are. Okay, Larry. So if what appears to be right the prevailing wisdom of, I think, both U.S. political parties and certainly governments across the EU, that we do need much more aggressive regulation and legislation and litigation, if that's not the right approach, what is? Can you spell out kind of what, what you think is the more appropriate and seemingly nuanced um, approach we should be taking? Sure. So, and I think, you know, it's not new by any stretch. It, it really is um, sort of baked into uh, any kind of deliberative government and particularly our constitutional system, which is that we, we take things uh, slowly um, in terms of, of making regulation that applies to specific business practices or specific uh, products or specific companies. So, you know, what we would start by doing is kind of calming down the rhetoric. Uh, Congress, you know, loves to, uh, to stand up and, and yell and shout uh, about perceived problems with the technology. Um, but a lot of this is rhetoric. Uh, we should really collect actual evidence of actual harms, whether it is to consumers or to competitors or to the political process itself. And analyze those uh, that evidence in a you know very traditional cost-benefit approach, and then start to look, as I said before, uh, for what we can do. What kind of remedies can we design? What kind of regulators uh, will have the capacity and the ability to fix those market failures that aren't fixing themselves, and do so in a way that isn't going to introduce costs and and problems that are actually more expensive than doing nothing, which of course is always uh, an alternative uh, remedy. If you imagine that uh, you can't make it any better, uh, then you know don't you know sort of don't do anything. There's an, there's an old joke about uh, emergency room doctors on their first day. They're told, "Don't just do something; stand there," uh, because until you actually know what's going on, the likelihood is much greater that you're going to do something bad than something good. I'm not saying that's not possible, but right now, you know, government, particularly Congress, uh, you know, you've heard the hearings when. Uh, when they talk to social media companies or other tech companies, they don't even understand the name of the company or the product. They have obviously no idea how it works or who's using it or what they're doing with it. Um, that is not a good foundation for careful and deliberative analysis of problems uh, and the design of effective solutions. Uh, so, you know, one short-term fix is bring back something called the Office of Technology Assessment, uh, which went out with the uh, contract with America uh, for no other reason than it was just an easy line item to strike. But that was an office that really helped Congress understand how technology worked. And in, in, this, in some sense, we've needed it more than ever during the period when it's been gone. Uh, there have been some calls uh, uh, at some platforms to bring back the OTA. 
if, if nothing else, that would be a really good first step. So let's call that one keep calm and learn. So what's the second point in your approach? So the second point really is to, to really let the technology regulate itself wherever possible. And again, you know, there's a lot of bad, uh, bad press about self-regulation or what uh, some of them refer to as soft law, uh, industry standards, uh, trade associations, uh, things of this nature, setting best practices, determining, you know, when things aren't working. But actually, there's a long history of that uh, working. And even in this sector, even in high tech, uh, we have a lot of, uh, again, they're not perfect by any means. The incentives aren't always best aligned, and particularly when there are these uh, externalities involved, uh, sometimes we don't see them. Certainly that's true in terms of, uh, of climate change. But uh, wherever possible, let the technology do its own regulation and wait for, as I said before, new generations of disruptive innovation to displace today's giants uh, or at least to discipline them to behave in ways that are, are more effective. All right, Larry. So uh, point two is let the technology regulate where possible, which leads to point three. You know, again, we're not going to be completely supine here. We are going to intervene. Uh, we're going to intervene when we have, you know, actual evidence that the market has failed and is not correcting itself. Uh, and that's, of course, you know, the time when, uh, when regulators are best suited to intervene. Now, the problem here is that the first time uh, we're going to hear about this is when the kind of incumbent competitors go to the regulators and say, wow, this new thing just showed up, whether it's, you know, Uber uh, or, or uh, blockchain or cryptocurrencies, if you're in banking, and they're going to say, this new technology, it's not regulated. Um, it's messing with my business. We want you, our traditional regulator, we want you to stop it. We want you to slow it down or ban it or regulate it the way you regulate us uh, because we don't really know how to compete with that. And rather than figuring it out, we would rather have a regulatory solution. So there's a caveat here. We do want to intervene when markets have truly failed, but we don't want to do it just because the incumbents are pressuring the regulators to do it. And your fourth point. Uh, again, it's, it's really the approach that uh, we've embraced uh, in the last hundred years with this sort of administrative state or with these expert regulatory agencies. We give them, uh, you know, sort of a charter, we give them a domain, and then we have a process by which, uh, through again, through careful evidence collection, through expert testimony, through public notice and comment, uh, they come up with the rules. Now, again, it's not perfect because, you know, even though they're largely isolated, insulated from the uh, political process, as we've seen. Uh, there always is the temptation for the administration or for Congress, uh, which share authority over these agencies, to kind of, you know, tweak the system for political reasons. But, you know, the Constitution does protect them in a large sense from those kind of interventions. And by and large, I think, you know, that has worked. It's expensive, it's slow, lower than we want it to be. Uh, and maybe, you know, uh, it, it is becoming increasingly political, but it's mostly worked. And, and certainly, I think it's the basis for uh, any kind of expansion of the regulation of disruptive innovation. So we shouldn't regulate until um, harm has been demonstrated. Um, when we do regulate, it should be focused very specifically on the measurable harm. And then that brings us to number five. Even then, it should be temporary. Yeah, we have 
we have uh, we have so many uh, you know laws and regulations on the book. I mean, literally the uh, the code of federal regulation, which is the kind of uh, statutory embodiment of all the regulations from all the agencies. If you start looking at how many pages have been added, uh, it just goes up exponentially uh, over the last uh, couple of decades. One of the problems is we don't set sunset provision. Now, a lot of uh, some some regulations, some laws do have sunset provisions, but they say. Look, it doesn't mean it necessarily goes away. It just says if you don't renew this in two years or five years, then it will sunset. It will it will go away. Um, that's a technique that I think is especially appropriate when again we're talking about innovative technologies. Uh, we've got laws on the books, you know, dealing with uh, spam, uh, dealing with computer security. They're so outdated. They're so obsolete. Uh, they can cause uh, unintended harm. Because uh, now they're there and they can be misused. Uh, better just to let them go away. And if we still haven't solved the problem, which in the case of spam, for example, we certainly haven't, then we just start over. We need new laws to deal with the new reality, the, the new technology, the new way in which uh, spam is delivered and created and, and abused. Um, the old law just can't handle it, never could. Uh, but rather than leave it on the books, uh, uh, potentially to pop up in unexpected and unhelpful ways, Let's set it aside to sunset and then start over uh, with, uh, with sort of, you know, a, a fresh slate. Larry, I will say that I think you present a very cogent argument. I think plenty of listeners um, will not fully agree, as you know, right? I'm, you know, I'm, I, I think you make some, 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 some very good points. I'm not totally there. Um, I think there probably is a role for somewhat more aggressive um, involvement um, by governments, given the state of where we are. But you state your position very well, and you certainly have, um, you're certainly a credible voice um, in this conversation, and I thank you. All right, Larry, three big points for business leaders on tech, innovation, and regulation for 2021. Number one. There are key technologies, including drones, autonomous vehicles, blockchain, and so on, that are already being discussed and already being considered for regulation. How they ultimately are regulated could have a large impact on your industry and how it changes. Number two. Number two is to re-engage really with trade groups and industry groups and make sure that they're following not just sort of traditional competitors, but new entrants and new technologies to make sure, again, if those new technologies are going to affect your industry, you have a voice in how they are going to be regulated. And number three. Number three is I think we can learn from the pandemic. We've just had kind of a, a natural experiment in how tech can be used in a crisis. And a lot of things we learned, both good and bad about that, should have a big influence on how we want to regulate tech in the next decade. And make sure to check out Larry's new article, How Should the Biden Administration Approach Tech Regulation with Great Care, at Sloan Review. MIT.edu. That's all for this week's Three Big Points. Remember, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and wherever fine podcasts are streamed. If you'd like to support our show, please post a rating or a review on whatever podcast platform you prefer. Three Big Points is produced by Mary Dew, music by Matt Reed, marketing and audience development by Desiree Barry, our coordinating producers, are Michelle DiFilippo and Mackenzie Wise.